0: Hello, you're listening to the Royal Horticultural Society's Gardening Podcast. This November edition is packed full of practical seasonal advice from our garden experts. Plus, botanist James Armitage reveals the surprising stories of some of the weirder plants in the collection here at RHS Garden Wisley. And Sean Thomas explores some gorgeous gardens for you to visit this autumn. But first, honey fungus. Affecting many different woody shrubs and perennials, it's one of our most destructive plant diseases. Our advice team receive hundreds of inquiries from gardeners concerned about the threat of this disease. To help gauge the spread and severity of its effect, the RHS science team are asking people to report sightings or possible sightings of infection across the UK. So let's find out more. I'm Jassy Draculich,
1: I'm a plant pathologist here at the RHS working at Wisley. I work here exclusively researching honey fungus and the project that we've launched this autumn is a survey called the RHS Honey Fungus Hunt. It's established initially as a survey to find mushrooms when they appear in the autumn time but also to try and gain data from anyone that's had honey fungus in their gardens previously as well. If you've got any photos of any honey fungus mushrooms or suspected honey fungus mushrooms, that's what we're asking you to send in, along with details of where they were found. So if it was found attached to a host plant and if that plant looks healthy or not. One of my primary aims of the survey is to find out not just when honey fungus has killed things, but also how prevalent it is and it's actually causing very little harm. So if you found mushrooms, even if you're not sure what they are, submit them and I can verify them. Honey fungus is a fungus that rots the roots of plants and disrupting the water flow up from the roots to the aerial parts of the plants so that when you have disease being caused by honey fungus, you first observe dieback above the ground with the leaves and the branches crisping up because the water can't get from the roots to the shoots. After a while of rotting down those roots, the plant will eventually die and the fungus can carry on feeding from that dead material after the host is is actually dead for a long period of time. So any big woody plants that get infected can then be a source of fungus to go and infect neighbouring healthy plants for decades afterwards. The species that we see predominantly within gardens were of one type. Armillaria mellia, which is the most aggressive and is an out-and-out out pathogen and will infect healthy plants. But we do also sometimes get cases of Armaleria gallica, which is a weaker pathogen and can only affect hosts which are already weakened by some other way. Because of the two different species that we get occurring in gardens, I'd say the first thing to do is have a guess as to which one you've got. So if you've only had one plant that was already a bit weak, and has died, and you find honey fungus in its roots, it might not have been the primary cause of that plant's death. And in that circumstance, it's really up to you about whether you do anything about it. Because if that is an indicator that you have the weak pathogen, Armalaria gallica, it might not be worth doing anything at all and just letting it live in your garden and trying to keep the rest of your plants as healthy as possible. However, if something healthy has then just suddenly died and you're worried about it infecting other healthy plants in your garden, that is an indicator that you've got Armillaria melia in that case the only thing you can really do to try and get rid of it and to stop it from spreading is to dig it out we do see patterns where it spreads along the roots of plants so getting rid of the big bits of roots that you can access and especially the things nearer the surface will reduce the amount of fungus that can potentially go on and infect other things once it's out trying to starve it to death before you replant is the best idea so leaving it fallow for at least six months or up to a year maybe just dressing your bed with pots or something in the meantime. If you want something more longer term, changing the planting design of your garden, so a pond or a lawn, something completely different might be the way to go, depending on how many plants you've had die and how worried you are about it getting to other parts of your garden. Most of the time, you won't be able to observe above-ground symptoms, other than when it is manifesting as the dieback. But if you do pull off some of the bark from the roots or the stem base of infected plants, you would see the fungus growing beneath the outer bark layer and the actual middle bark wood as like a white fan-like structure of this fungal mycelium. And it's kind of it smells very mushroomy. You can sort of peel it off. It's very it's like almost like a skin, like the top of a mushroom skin. The actual mushrooms themselves, they do appear but only in the autumn time and that's where the name honey fungus comes from because they have this sort of golden brown colouring to them. It is entirely ubiquitous throughout the UK. The host range is enormous, hundreds and hundreds of plants, including plants that are not woody. Herbaceous things can get it as well. And actually utilising those herbaceous plants in lab work has been very useful for research tools. But it's something to bear in mind in your garden if you've got a herbaceous border next to a plant that's dying and you're having issues with it, potentially honey fungus could be the cause of that decline as well. So with the findings firstly yeah, I want to just have a look at what we've got out there seeing how often people are actually able to identify honey fungus correctly and how much confusion is still going on and therefore know whether we need to update that advice even further to help gardeners be empowered in their battle with dealing with honey fungus for themselves. Also we're asking people to report on if they've ever got incidences from the past in their gardens and telling me as much as they can about those disease incidences. From that, I'm going to try and build models about whether you can reliably predict which species is causing the disease in different gardens, whether particular plants constantly evade disease, which management practices people have used and whether they're actually working or not, and which directions we can take our research to implement experiments to validate what future advice we want to give out because it is the number one disease inquiry that we've had for the last 20 plus years at the RHS so making sure that our advice is up to date and scientifically validated is our top priority.
0: If you'd like to be a citizen scientist and take part in this research please visit rhs.org.uk forward slash honeyfungushunt. Now, as well as honey fungus, what other issues have been troubling listeners recently? I gathered experts from the Wisley teams together to tackle some of your inquiries. And this week, we're focusing on fruit.
2: I'm Matthew Cromie, and I'm one of the plant pathologists in the plant health team.
3: I'm Emily Smith. I work on the edibles team. My name is Pavlina Kapsalis, and I am a member of the edibles team here at Wisley.
0: OK, so this year in the garden how has it been for fruit growing? We've had a good old mixture of uh, of weather. How's it been?
4: Yeah, I'd agree. It's been mixed. We've had a little bit of a problem with a late frost this year. Things like the apples in the orchard were majorly affected. Also our outdoor vines. We got a much smaller crop this year. Also the strawberries and the
3: gooseberries were hit by that
4: late frost.
3: Yeah, but on the upper we had quite good uh, crop of blackcurrants and uh, raspberries actually, so they were quite good. And is that because it was just cold at a certain specific time that you needed or? Yeah, what? I think so. I think they, um, uh, blackcurrants were a little bit affected by the early frost but not as much as the other crop and um, raspberries generally they spread the flowering over over the season and then the autumn fruiting raspberries kind of subsidised, so that was quite good. We had a good good crop of those.
0: Okay so for our first question we've had an email from Rebecca Patch and uh, she says I'm originally from Wakefield and I'd like to recreate a taste of the north by growing rhubarb in my new London garden. It has a clayish soil and is north facing. How do I go about this and are there any pests and diseases that I need to worry about? Emily what what do you think? I would say it's really good that you're on a clay
4: soil uh, because clay's good as it retains the moisture and the nutrients well. But you might want to think about adding some organic matter because rhubarb doesn't actually like being waterlogged. The soil needs to be still quite free draining. Um, If you're on clay, it'd be a good idea to add your organic matter in autumn. um, And then you have some time to allow the frost to break up the soil over the winter. And that improves the soil structure. Generally speaking, rhubarb likes quite an open, sunny site. But it can cope with a bit of shade, so you might be all right in the um, north-facing aspect. The ideal time for planting rhubarb is normally when it's dormant, so usually from about November to February. But choose a point when the soil isn't waterlogged or frozen. So you might find that towards the end of the winter would work quite well. I'd say when you're planting your rhubarb, just make sure you don't plant it too deep. Um, If you plant it too deep, the crown might start to rot, so just position it so the surface is just slightly proud of the actual soil so you can see the buds properly. They
0: do like their cold, don't they? They 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 need quite a lot of cold weather each year.
4: They do um, actually need a certain amount of cold to break their dormancy. So also if you think about mulching your rhubarb sort of towards the end of the winter, make sure you don't cover it so that the... Um, the actual crown is properly exposed to the cold. Good advice.
3: Have you got anything to add to that, Pavlina? Or maybe just to mention with the pest, as Emily said, it's generally pest free, but maybe when you get your rhubarb, if you're buying it in a container, just check for vine weevil because they are prone to the vine weevil. And we were just removing um, our collection, rhubarb collection, and we actually found quite few in our crowns, uh, rhubarb crowns. So that's probably a good thing to check. So what would people be looking for? When you lift your crown, you can see inner roots almost like little holes and tunnels, and then you can see little white grubs with the brown heads, which are vine weevil larvae. They really like rhubarb. <laughs> it's my
0: <laughs> most upsetting. Are there any diseases yeah. that rhubarb get, Matthew?
2: Yeah, well, Emily, you made a good point about waterlogged soils being an issue, and that can cause direct rotting of, of the crowns themselves but also can make them more prone to disease. So there's a couple of diseases we do see um, generally in the ground and waterlogged soils but honey fungus people are used to seeing that in trees and shrubs but uh, rhubarb is quite susceptible to to honey fungus as well. If you've got honey fungus in the garden that could be an issue and rhubarb's a perennial crop, so over, over the years that it can build up. Uh, also a bacterial crown rot, so if you've got a really waterlogged soil, that can end up with, uh, with a real slimy rotting. So if you get those, um, really all you can do is remove those crowns, replace the soil and, and, and pretty much start again. But if you avoid the waterlogged soil to start with, you'll have much less of an issue. Okay, so we have a- another question from H. Jones of Leicester who asks, when should I plant strawberries to get as early a crop as possible? Any recommendations of early varieties? Uh, what do you think, Pavla?
3: Um, well, uh, we can plant uh, strawberries really from strawberry runners from um, autumn, in early, early autumn or in the spring, um, really start from March onwards. We also can get the strawberries from many nurseries um, as a cold store runners. These are harvested runners, which you put in a freezer on a minus two uh, degrees Celsius. And then they can be planted anytime really from April till midsummer. And you should get your harvest about 60 days after. Um, With the strawberries to help you to maybe have an earlier crop is very good when you have got them in containers. You can perhaps put them in an unheated greenhouse where then they will be kind of um, growing faster and flowering a bit earlier because they are protected. Very important then there is to open your a greenhouse for pollinators and if it is early and pollinators are not out like bees are not flying around you will have to hand pollinate um, another thing you can make your um, strawberries crop earlier if they are outdoors you can put the cloches or fleece over them again important to uncover them during the warmer part of the day to Ensure the pollination. So for the hand pollinating, you can just get a really soft brush and brush the flowers from one to another, and the pollen is basically spread from one flower to another. The cultivars or varieties for early fruiting is um, one of the ones which were trialed in our RHS Wesley trials, which did really well was Vibrant, the so early strawberry. It's a very good cultivar, quite disease resistant, and um, also. It fruits on uh, upright stalks, which means that you don't have the strawberries kind of lying on the floor and it protects them from maybe botrytis, kind of molding and uh, yeah, keeps them nice and upright for picking up. So that's one of the ones which we would recommend. Otherwise, another early one is Honey O, which was awarded um, Award of Garden Merit. So that's a good cultivar. And one of the newer cultivars, Christine, which is very early with large fruit.
4: So this next question is from Fiona Ross. And her question was, my pears have ugly orange blisters on the leaves and have cropped badly this year. They are planted next to some roses which have black spot. Could the flowers have infected my fruit tree?
2: Um, Well, orange blisters sounds like pear rust to me. Um, It's a fairly good description of it. Um, So it's an interesting disease because it's it's a rust disease, but it has two hosts. It alternates between junipers and pears. Uh, the spores that you see on, on being produced on those blisters on the pears don't reinfect the pears, they'll go into Juniper and vice versa. So um, it's a pretty host specific plant disease uh, nothing to do with your roses at all um, but it's quite difficult to manage you can try and if you've got some junipers nearby you can have a look for cankering on the junipers and that may be producing the spores that are getting onto it but the spores can travel really long distances um, so if you're getting it on the pears um, rather than considering it as an as ugly orange blisters I think they're actually quite fascinating things to look at and it's not going to reinfect your pears because those spores on those leaves aren't going to infect pears again so removing your leaves is actually going to reduce your yield not increase your yield if you're growing it as a as a uh, as a fruiting crop as against ornamental, you can't use fungicides. Um, so really it's a matter of have a look at your junipers. If there's any nearby, you can maybe reduce the amount of spores coming in in the spring. Otherwise, just try and enjoy it. Um, I don't think that the, um, that, that the uh, unless you had really severe infection, it's probably not what's reduced the cropping. It's probably more likely uh, uh, something like frost or um, another environmental factor would be my guess for the, for the cropping. Usually it's not severe enough to do a lot of damage.
0: I really like that attitude. Just, just, just enjoy the fungus. We'll be hearing more of your horticultural problems in this podcast next month. If you'd like to know more about the plants or topics discussed, why not have a look at the advice pages of our website, rhs.org.uk forward slash advice. Here you'll also find contact information for the team, plus details of how you can become a member of the RHS so you can use our advisory service for free at any time. One of the many other benefits of being a member is unlimited free entry to all four of our gardens and special offers at our hundreds of partner gardens across the UK. This is a wonderful time for garden visits as the colourful autumn leaves fall away to reveal the beautiful architectural forms and the striking colour of bark and stems. Sean Thomas has the enviable task of visiting and reviewing gardens for our Members magazine. She'll be joining the podcast team regularly to share with visitors her pick of gardens to visit every season.
5: One of the really great benefits of being a member of the RHS is that as well as the RHS gardens, you can visit our network of 200 wonderful RHS partner gardens. Uh, These are independently owned gardens around the UK and also overseas that really generously support the work of the RHS by opening their doors for free to RHS members. The free opening time applies either throughout the garden's opening period or at selected times, and with 200 partner gardens to choose from, you're never far from a partner garden that you can visit. There's a huge range of partner gardens to visit. They range from really large formal estates like Blenheim Palace to naturalistic gardens to quite small domestic-sized gardens like the Victorian Leisure Gardens at Hill Close in Warwickshire. The partner gardens are located right round the UK. Uh, there, are, there are gardens in Scotland, very, very north Scotland, right down to southwest of England. Uh, so wherever you are, and if you're travelling as well, we have a number of partner gardens overseas, particularly in the Loire Valley in France, that you can visit. A really fantastic destination in autumn would have to be Sheffield Park in East Sussex. It's well known for its autumn colour, and you. Can easily see why when you visit. One of the nice things about it is that it's constantly changing. So, as some trees come to their peak, others are starting to colour up and others are starting to come to an end. So, as well as the huge tree and shrub collection, the two Capability Brown Lakes make it extra special because they're very still and they mirror all the colour. So you almost get this double effect, which is absolutely fantastic. The colour comes in part from more than 70 acer species and cultivars. There's lots of nissa, the buttery yellow birch grove, there's glowing deciduous oaks and also rusty taxodium near the lake. So there's just an absolute firework of colours to see. There's also really lovely views as you walk around and some interesting historical features. Uh, For example, there's a James Pullman Sun waterfall that was built in the 1880s that you can look at as well. Now, it wouldn't be autumn without fruit and veg, of course, and many of the partner gardens have harvest events, which are a really nice way to connect with all the sights and tastes and smells that make autumn such a lovely time of year. And one really nice harvest destination is Doddington Hall near Lincoln. They have a two acre walled kitchen garden that's absolutely packed with fruit, veg, salads and herbs. And they're all grown using organic techniques. So a visit means you can go and see what's growing in the kitchen garden they also have some special events so why not put on your wellies pick your own pumpkin which you can then either take home and carve or you can also pick up a recipe in the farm shop if you're feeling inspired to make a seasonal dish they also are having an apple day where there will be tours tastings apple bobbing and a chance to see the apples being pressed for all the dates and details you can look on the Doddington Hall website When most people think about autumn they probably tend to think of bright tree foliage but actually autumn is also a really terrific time to enjoy ornamental grasses. They give so much to the garden. There's the sound of the breezes wafting through. If they're left tall they can be stunningly beautiful particularly through the winter when the frost catches them and they're also a real haven for wildlife. One good place to enjoy grasses at their very best is Knoll Gardens in Dorset. If you visit Knoll, you'll find a really relaxed style of planting that's actually inspired by the way that plants coexist in wild habitats, so it's a really interesting place to visit. There's tapestries of grasses and flowering perennials, so you'll get lots of ideas on choice plants, how to combine them in exciting ways, and also how to get maximum effect for relatively little maintenance. The owner, Neil Lucas, also holds masterclasses, so you can go along to one of those and pick up tips on achieving the naturalistic style yourself at home. The Best Chateau Gardens need no introduction, really, and they're very special in any season that you might want to visit. You'll definitely want to take your camera to capture the drama of late autumn. It's like someone has turned up the colour contrast levels. The garden, as you might know, has been laid out according to the principle of right plant, right place. And there's impressive colour and texture in each area throughout the garden. So in the water garden, for example, you've got the bright foliage of the ginkgo, the arching grasses and the seed heads, little dainty crocuses and the swamp cypress, uh, which visitors really love because it has these little knobbly knees coming up out of the ground and it's all reflected in the pond itself. In the gravel garden which must be the best known part of the gardens you'll definitely want to reach out and touch the lovely smooth bark of eucalyptus del Rimpliana. underneath there's carpets of thyme weaving between the clumps of glossy begonia leaves and lots of grasses for texture like calamagrostis stipa poa and pennisetum and they add lots of movement to the scheme as well So that's just four partner gardens that would be well worth a visit in autumn, but there are plenty more. There's 200 partner gardens around the UK, so there's always one nearby. Even if you don't live near an RHS garden, you'll be spoilt for choice.
0: Sian Thomas. You can read more of her reviews every month in The Garden, the RHS's magazine for members. Shan will be back in the new year with her pick of unmissable winter gardens. But don't forget, you can find details of events and attractions hosted at Wisley, our partner gardens and our other RHS gardens on our website. That's almost all we have time for in today's podcast. But before we go, just time for James Armitage to encounter his next oddity from the Wisley Plant Collections.
6: While the meticulous process of organized plant breeding has been responsible for much of the extraordinary diversity we see in cultivated plants, serendipity has played a hand in the origin of many of our most cherished garden subjects. Had not the right pair of eyes chanced to rest upon the right ceiling at the right time, how many treasured favorites might have gone by the by? One notable example of a plant that so nearly slipped through the net is the ubiquitous and delightful Mahonia Cross Media charity. The Sleeve Donard Nursery of County Downe, Northern Ireland closed for business in 1975, but its legacy lives on in gardens across the world. Established in 1904, it came into the ownership of a rose grower named William Slinger, who, upon his retirement in 1946, was succeeded by his son Leslie. The nursery soon earned a reputation for innovative breeding in genera as disparate as Escalonia, Diorama and Mechanopsis, and became a natural destination for plant enthusiasts visiting the area. And so it was in 1950 or the following year that John Russell of Richmond Nursery, Surrey, made his way there to see what was new. One of the things that caught his eye was a large batch of young seedlings of Mahonia lumarii folia. This species is still not common in gardens as being native to Southwest China and Myanmar, it is considered somewhat frost tender. In the early 1950s, it would have been less common still having only been introduced from Yunnan by Major Lawrence Johnson in 1931. Russell decided to buy a hundred of the small plants, which he took with him back to Surrey. And here in the story, like some benevolent garden spirit, luck takes its part. Sir Eric Savile was originally trained as a chartered surveyor, but by his mid-thirties was involved in the management of the Windsor Crown Estate, holding various posts including Deputy Ranger and Director of Forestry and Gardens. His greatest gift to the nation is the Savile Garden, which is not one garden at all, but a series of interlocking woods, glades, and ornamental areas that he developed with his head gardener, Hope Findlay, in the 1930s and 1940s. John Russell had been growing on his little Mahonia seedlings for two years when Savile and Findlay chanced to see them on a visit to his nursery, and, with their sharp eyes for novelty, picked out three from among the herd that seemed just a little different. These they obtained and planted in the Savile garden. In 1957, they flowered for the first time, and it became clear that one plant in particular was a hybrid between the glamorous Mahonia folia and the old stalwart of the shrub border, Mahonia japonica. Curiously, Leslie Slinger had deliberately tried to perform this cross at sleeve Donard, but without success, and it had been left to the chance intervention of an unsuspecting bee to bring the two species together. The plant was named Charity and became an immediate success, quickly gaining accolades and awards at RHS shows and winning renown for its excellent habit and the profusion of its flowers borne throughout late autumn, winter and early spring. In 1979, Christopher Bickell, who was later to become the RHS's first Director-General, provided the botanical name Mahonia Cross Media for all hybrids between Mahonia japonica and Mahonia lamariae folia. The publication appeared in the first ever edition of the RHS periodical The Plantsman. Three years later, Wisley received from the Savile Garden two plants grown as cuttings from the original charity. They are by no means the finest examples of the plant in the garden, but they enliven a shady nook on Battleston Hill, close to the A3, where they were planted. Over the years, at least a dozen further selections of Mahonia Cross Media have been given cultivar names, but charity remains the best known, and perhaps still the finest. With its holly-like evergreen leaves, and inflorescences strung with festive candles of blossom, Mahonia Cross Media Charity could be the very embodiment of a Merry Christmas. How extremely lucky we are to have it.
0: James Armitage. You can see intriguing illustrations, photos, and find more information about all the plants James has talked about on the RHS website. You can also revisit his back catalogue and hear any previous episodes of the series that you may have missed rhs.org.uk slash Plant Encounters. Well, I'm afraid that's all we have time for in this edition of the RHS Gardening Podcast. We'll be back in two weeks. Until then, remember you can follow us through our social media. For now, from me, Jenny Bowden, and all the podcast team, goodbye.